Welcome to the New Mana Podcast, an Arch KCK production. Welcome back to New Mana, your newest favorite Catholic podcast on the Holy Eucharist. My name is Lee McMahon, your host, and I serve as consultant for evangelization at the Archdiocese of Kansas City in Kansas. But don't be fooled if you've got a pulse, this podcast is for you. So today we got the second part of a great conversation that I had with Sebastian D'Amico and Jenny Punswick. And guys, buckle up because this is a good one. But before I kick you over to the episode, I just want to say thanks to everybody out there who has listened faithfully to New Mana. We just crossed the 10,000 download mark. So we are in over 25 countries on five continents. We are proclaiming the gospel to nations, literally nations all over the world. And part of that success actually comes from people out there leaving reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you for helping us get the word out that Jesus is alive, that he's about a good work, and that he is truly present, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Holy Eucharist. Thanks for being a part of this amazing journey. So without further ado, here is the episode. And as you were talking there, just this 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 phrase just came into my my mind. It was just there is no heart on earth more important than your spouse's. Yeah. You know, it's it's one thing to say that marriage is important. It's another thing to say that this one person's beating heart, their soul is the most important thing to me mm-hmm. as spouse in the world, like who they are, where they are, their heart. There's nothing more important because as you said, vocation is what first, our identity is son or daughter and then we have our our spousal relationship, right? And then after that, the relationship with our kids, getting them to heaven. And then after that, teaching X, Y, and Z, doctor, whatever. And it's just, it really struck me when you Mm -hmm. said that, like they're, my wife's heart is the most important in the entire world, above all. No matter how much I may want to feel that or feel that on any given day, that's just the reality. Yeah, yeah. and as a sacrament, our marriage our marriage is, is a sign of God's yeah. love for the rest of the world. Yeah. So if we get that wrong, like we're, yeah. we're getting, even just on a, like an off day yeah. or an off, we get that wrong, we're, we're getting the... Yeah. We're not witnessing to the sign, right? We, we're getting that wrong too. That's mm-hmm. that's huge. Yeah, um, we're sending the wrong Morse code. Yes, across. You yes, know, whatever. And then also just with the kids, like I love that um, kind of what you were, you you hinted at with the dolls and the crate of toys in the center. Um, it was like we just got to remember to let kids be kids, and for them to be kids in a way that's not how would you say, chaotically disrupting. Like if right. they cry, kids are going to cry. That's what they do. They cry. They they get upset. And they're restless. Yeah. Like my kids are crazy. Like I'm, I'm ADD and I'm like, yes, you are my children. You know, you, you're, we're sitting there praying the rosary. And before you know it, there's like a hot wheel track right there. Yeah. But they're praying along. Yeah. And you're like, I got to honor this. That, and they're, most of the time they're not being bad. They're just being three. Yeah, right? exactly. We just have to remember that's okay for them to just be three yeah. or four or five or whatever it is. And, uh, or 14 or 17. Yeah. I'm not there yet. So I, uh, one day, one day. That's wonderful. Thanks for sharing about um, your prayer life, Sebastian. What about you? Um, well, the I think the the best advice that was given to me early on was make a habit of of getting to daily mass mm. and make a habit of of daily prayer. Um, and I was thinking about this. The it's kind of like 
you know, uh, at the beginning of our conversation, we were talking about the Jubilee year. And we yeah. talked about how the Sabbath goes once every seven days and then once every seven years, then once every, you know, f- 50 years. Kind of it gets from small to big. Yeah. But you can also go from the week and go smaller. So if every week has a day of rest, every day has to have an hour of rest. Hmm. At least, right? At least. At least. And it's it's not because anyone told me to. It's because I'm I'm just in desperate need of something. And not sleep. Yeah. Sleep no, don't yeah, not count. that. Yeah. Not that. Yeah, it has to be there has to be some other prioritization of those things. So um my my prayer life tends to be getting to daily daily mass as often as I can mm. and um making some time to pray um with scriptures. And I really love Liturgy of the Hours, and that's been probably the best. One of the the more recent things that we've been, you know, every every if there's young families listening to this, the your prayer life has what what works for your family's prayer shifts over the years. Yeah, and learning how to be flexible with that is really is really important. So, um, in my case, so I don't become a monster. Same. <laughs> that those no. things aren't aren't happening. May, yeah, uh, maybe it's. Is it a dad thing? I don't know. But like, it's like, this is what we must do. This is what we, yeah. It's like, no, it's okay if we don't finish the entire rosary tonight because child X is melting down. Mm -hmm. Right. It's like, okay, like guardian angels, we just pray that you finish this rosary. Jesus, we love you. And, you know, that's that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, well, one of the things that has worked recently for us has been praying morning prayer from Liturgy of the Hours together as a couple. And similarly, when you get to those that passage of, of the because every for those of you that don't know Liturgy of the Hours, Liturgy of the Hours is the prayer of the church that she prays throughout the whole day. It's kind of like the, if you think of it like a continuous prayer, the the yeah. climax of every day is the mass for the church. But she's praying every hour. She's praying all the time, and she invites um, the religious and lay people to join that prayer, however they can, in yeah. whatever in whatever means. But the the bones of that prayer are the psalms that are prayed at certain times of the day, um, and you know priests and religious take a vow to pray that regularly every mm-hmm. day, and they, they they take a vow to that. Um, we just pray it whenever we we can, so we sure. tend to pray just the morning prayers, and then part of those psalms is always intentions, and yeah. there's the church gives you intentions, which is really merciful because it gives you words. Yep. Um, but then, um, similar to what what Jenny was saying, when when we can start sharing our own intentions of what's on our minds, that ends up being one of the one of the best dimensions of that. Mm-hmm. And you could take any piece of this that's helpful. You could just do the yep. intentions. You could just do a psalm. You could just do however it works and what what works. But um, for your state in life, but those things have been really yeah. really beautiful. And then on the the back end of the day, the the thing that has been really um, one of the most inspiring things. Mike Schurzlich, I remember he would talk about how he would pray. He would read something out loud to his kids, and then he'd pray a decade of the rosary. And he was doing that with, I think, some of his, his kids when they were high schoolers. And um, I listened to that, and I thought, I can I can kind of adapt that. So we would start, like, reading the Chronicles of Narnia. Sure. We'd read something, and then we'd, like, put it down right before we went to bed. And we'd be like, well, what's worth meditating on from that chapter? And that was a really simple way of doing one decade and some reading time and as yeah. the, uh, over the years as that's gone um one of the most significant things we've been trying to do is just teach our kids scripture yeah so um a short 
Bible passage and then a decade mm-hmm. at night and then a, and then a blessing before they go to bed. Yeah. Um, th- those things have been the best. And you know what's been the most surprising to me? Mm. The most surprising is that whatever... I heard this from another friend um, recently, and I wish someone had told me this early on as being a dad. Um, whatever you do as a dad and as a mom, that becomes normal for your kids. Mm-hmm. If it's awkward for you, they will pick up on the awkward. But if you just say, this is what we're going to do, just peace and not become yeah. a Nazi about it, right? But yeah. if, in other words, when I was a kid, if someone had said, we're going to pray a rosary, I would have dragged my feet and been complaining the entire time. Yeah. Um, and certainly are, that's, that may be a, a piece of, of people's experience in doing this with kids. But if you just do this as a normative thing, mm-hmm. th- the kids actually know what it is. It becomes a part of them. It becomes a part of them. Yeah. And that's really amazing. Yeah. Um, and it's been, it's been a mercy thus far. I'm sure mm-hmm. maybe there'll be different struggles with that as, as kids get older perhaps, but, um, just to give confidence to any, anyone who's listening to this, just because you haven't experienced it as normal, doesn't mean that you can't establish it as mm-hmm. normal. Yep. And, and if you have a desire for it, yeah. then to, yeah, to act on that desire for your family uh, with reasonable expectations yeah. and know yeah. there's a lot of mercy. I've another, another piece on praying the rosary that I was, I've been, I was so delighted to see my kids memorize these prayers that yeah. I didn't learn. We prayed the rosary, but growing up, but I don't, I don't recall the on ramp or the off ramp sure. <laughs> prayers. And my kids learn those by saying them once a week. That's it. Sure. Once a week throughout their lives, once a week that they learned those longer mm-hmm. prayers. And um, yeah, that's yeah. been lovely to witness. Yeah. Like my five-year-old or four-year-old, um, they like he knows the Salve Regina because yeah. we sing it every night oh. before bed, and yeah, it's it's really profound. How do you know you do this, but not where your shoes are? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's priceless. Yeah, I mean, if there's any advice I could give, it's just like having a pillar in the morning and a pillar in the evening, mm-hmm. and um, and then you just kind of custom fit it to your family and what it is that you know. What's your rhythm of life? Like, are you a morning person or are you an evening person? Like, you just got to know it, own it. People can change, sure, but I'm a morning person. I pray, you know, solo, you know, scripture in the morning and evening, you know, family prayer, whether that be like two or three songs on the guitar, we're doing praise and worship, just having a blast, um, praising Jesus, or, you know, it'd be a a rosary. And, um, but we always read, you know, Bible before bedtime and um, yeah, so... Whatever it is, just there's no one solution. There's a myriad, and I love that about the church. Yeah. I, you know, I would also, since we're talking about the Eucharist um, and that it means gratitude, cultivating grateful hearts is such an important thing in a family. I, there was a priest who one year when our kids were little encouraged us on, um, on January 1st, instead of doing a New Year's resolution, think mm. about adopting a virtue for the year. Mm. Oh my gosh, a whole year for one virtue. That's beautiful. So we did that for a couple of years. And then one year, uh, I chose a joy. And I just ended up yelling at everyone to be joyful. <laughs> everyone be joyful. Be, be joyful. Be joyful. Uh, and, and as it turns out, it's it's difficult to scrounge for joy. Mm. That that the jumping off point for joy is really gratitude. And so then we we, we 
you know, we shifted a couple of months into the year and said, all right, we're, we're going to talk about gratitude. Mm. Um, we're going to, we're going to name the things that we're grateful for. And, and that like tiny pivot Mm. made such a huge difference in cultivating joyful hearts in our family. So at dinner, when we're all there and everyone isn't drinking out of the fire hose of children's activities, um, but at night, at dinner, we go around the table and everyone shares their best thing or something that they're grateful sure. for that day. And we've managed to create a couple of melancholics in the house who sometimes think that every day is the worst day of their lives. Uh, but it it's, again, a, a good check-in of getting a quick pulse of what happened of your day-to-day. Sure. Where was God present? What are you grateful for? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And love, you know, the fruits of the Holy Spirit, love, joy peace like mm-hmm. in that order it's if i'm living out of this relationship of love knowing that i am loved and i'm loving in return then joy is going to be a natural fruit mm-hmm. of that mm-hmm. yeah so it's it's not something you just say be happy be, <laughs> everyone be joyful yeah. smile yeah uh, would you what advice would you give to anybody out there who's on the fence with respect to uh jesus's real presence in the eucharist well i'd say if you're on the fence then you've come to the fence already right so hey. there's a desire yeah there's desire there um and my yeah, my advice would be to to let yourself be pursued, hmm. to let yourself uh, be pursued by God and recognize the docility. And, and I mean, this is in my own in my own life, in my own journey, um, when there have been moments of of at worst doubt, um, but sometimes even just just laziness, right? If I go to adoration, and even if I do not, if I stand in front of the sun and I do nothing, I'm still going to get burned, right? I'm Me still going to be tanned. Very, very burned. Yeah. <laughs> I might glow, <laughs> but you would burn. Um, no, I, the, the the presence the presence of the light will still have an impact on mm-hmm. me, whether I know that I'm out there to do that or not. And so, um, yeah, I would say one, be pursued, and two, pursue two. So even just showing up in front yeah. of adoration and or mass or the liturgy and and acknowledging that of yeah. giving that giving that to God giving him your doubts mm-hmm. putting all of that at the foot of the cross um say I'm you know I'm on the fence but I'm at the fence like I'm here yep. lord help help navigate my heart sure. closer to you mm. and that will bear fruit it always it always does mm. i think the what I would encourage people to to do would be to engage in some act of faith and and step out toward the Eucharist, um, even if even if you struggle with it, and to act as if it were Jesus, and then um, so whatever that means, if that means um, coming to Mass and just being particularly aware of that moment where the priest elevates the Eucharist and, you know, saying some, it could be as simple as, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Mm -hmm. But the second thing I would couple with that is some act of concrete service of neighbor that's connected to that act of faith. Um, Got any ideas? I mean, yeah, it could be, well, who's who's your neighbor? <laughs> do they do they need any help? Um, what, whatever it could be, sure, it could be your own child. It could be some act, something at your job, but but connect it with 
some act of love that mm. uh, there's a the, the advice of I'm going to butcher this because we probably have people listening that uh, love this book but in the brothers Karamazov mm. mm-hmm. there's there's a if I if I remember correctly there's a a priest who counsels one of the characters you need to just go you know lo- love is not just an intellectual thing it's a thing that you actually have to do if you struggle at, at, at believing that God is there, you need to actually go do something. You don't just sit and try to study it into existence. And I think that is, that, that, that's why I, I would counsel that. Like if, yeah. if you're on the fence with the Eucharist, you can study it and study what, what the church has said about it. And that's actually very important. But at some point, you're going to have to like lay down, lay, lay down the weapons of your sure. intellectual anal- analysis and you're gonna have to actually engage in some human activity yeah. of love. Actually, not not the human activity, the, the divine activity of love. And then and 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 use those two things, like your acts of love and the Eucharist, as kind of a sounding point, and see what see what occurs. Um, right. Go go engage in that act of love with, and then come back to the Eucharist and say, "I did that act of love because I know love is the most important thing." Mm. And just let those two, like two poles, kind of resonate yeah. against each other. Yeah. Father Zosima yeah. says to Aloysius, uh, or I don't know how you say it, Aloysius, yeah. Aloysia, right? Aloysia, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, to, to leave, he counsels him to, to leave and to go and do good in the world. Yeah. Yeah. So I hear what you're saying. He's got like 15 names, to yeah. be fair. Yeah. Um, Mother Teresa speaks beautifully to this and this relationship of of service and and recogn- recognizing the face of Christ in those she serves and then recognizing the recognizing Christ in the Eucharist. Yeah. And she sees those two things. She has, she says lots and writes lots about this, but how those two can't can't really be separated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we've talked about this before too that relationship of knowing and loving and serving how those fall how those kind of fall in mm. in in a line. Yeah. Um we're big Beauty and the Beast fans in our house. Nice. It's, it's, we, we love fairy tales. And that's really, Good. really, you know, Beauty Beauty can't love the Beast until she knows him first, right? And then, then she loves him, and then she's able to serve him. That's the order right. that it happens in that fairy tale. But um, it's not a bad model. Yeah, we can, we can only love that which we know. Right. Yeah, yeah. I was wondering, um, well... This might be a good time to transition to this the the final part of our conversation about mm-hmm. this document. We're going to unpack a little bit of Mane Nobiscum Domine, this apostolic letter that the Holy Father Saint John Paul II wrote to the bishops, the clergy, and all the faithful. And he wrote this uh, like he he wanted to do this thing called the, a Year of the Eucharist, and he did this in two thousand four to two thousand and five. And we are also in a year of the Eucharist. We're in this like in the middle of this trilogy. So we're doing this thing called the Eucharistic revival across the United States. And the previous year, uh, was like it finished in June, I think was the diocesan year of Eucharistic revival, which was basically the diocese's opportunity to get it together and figure out what we're going (laughs) to do for the parishes and stuff. And now we're in the parish year of Eucharistic revival. And then next year is going to be the Eucharistic year of mission. So people being sent out on mission. Uh, what that looks like, yeah, I don't know. Point being, 
JP2 was doing something similar in 2004 to 2005. And we're just going to unpack uh, section, or we're going to do paragraphs, I think, 17 to 23. So, um, yeah, without further ado, Jenny, Sebastian, any greatest hits from this section, stuff that stuck out to you and resonated? There was one thing, I think, in uh, paragraph 17 that I think is worth explaining, actually. Sure. Um, it uses this very big word, um, mystagogical catechesis. Love me some mystagogy. So this is... At, this is one of the most been one of the most helpful things you actually asked. This might this might be another answer to your question of what would I counsel someone who is struggling or on the fence with the Eucharist. Um, it says that pastors. Well, let's let's back up. The best way to enter into the mystery of salvation made present in the sacred signs remains that of following faithfully and on the unfolding of the liturgical year. Pastors should be committed to that mystagogical catechesis so dear to the fathers of the church, by which the faithful are helped to understand the meaning of the liturgy's words and actions, to pass from its signs to the mystery which they contain, and to enter into that mystery in every aspect of their lives. Every. Um, so mystagogical catechesis. Catechesis refers to the the training and the echoing is what the word catechesis comes from, the echoing of what the church, of what God has said, right? And we echo that truth back. So it's it's a, a way of saying religious education is how it, a modern person would say it, but catechesis has this echoing, this echoing concept mm. to it. And mystagogy is specifically geared at understanding the signs and symbols of the of, of, of the liturgy. So in other words, it's about sign reading, or maybe more simply, symbolism. Learning to interpret the symbolism of the Mass. Mm -hmm. And this is what the, the document's saying, right? Pastors, priests, should be committed to explaining the signs to the people. Yeah. The way that the Church Fathers were, because if you read um, a lot of the, the early Church theology is really just Church church fathers reflecting yeah. on the symbolism of and this you might say well what what does that matter well it actually is tremendously important because god is speaking to us in ways that we can understand he gives mm -hmm. us signs he gives us actual things um and learning to interpret what those things mean and and to and actually this becomes a study of the mass itself why does the priest um, go to an altar? What does the altar signify? Why does the priest wear these vestments? What do those vestments signify? Mm -hmm. what, why do we use incense? Why, what does that incense signify? The order of the prayers at Mass, yeah. what do those things signify? There's candles, there's music, there's all these different aspects of this. And this is a, a really... If, if we're going to seek to enter into this Eucharistic revival, it means explaining and studying the symbolism that's yeah. in this liturgy already. And my experience, I think this is important because in my experience, when someone explains what something means, it radically shifts how you encounter that thing yeah. for the rest of your, for every time you see it, it's like someone just hyperlinks a meaning to yeah. an action. Yeah. And you, every time you do that action, you bring that hyperlink mm -hmm. right back to mind. Probably the, the one of the most potent ones is 
um, I remember being taught that when the gifts are are brought up to the altar, yeah. right, the, the bread and the wine, that that bread represents all of our, the fruit of our hands, right, the fruit of our work, because bread comes from, it, it comes from the earth, even the Eucharistic prayer says this, right? It has to do with, but it's, but it's then formed by human sweat, right? So that, that bread, therefore, represents all the work that you have done in the previous week and all the work that you're about to do in the next. So that's what that represents. And then the, the wine represents the blood of the grape, and it represents all of your sweat and your blood and your tears and your suffering. So what's, what, why is that significant? Because we are taking the bread and the wine, my work and my pain and my suffering and my joys, right? And it's going, it's going to be placed on the altar. Well, what's the altar? It's, it's obviously a table, but it represents the cross where Jesus is going to be offered. So in other words, I'm uniting everything that I've got in my work, my joy, and my suffering and I'm putting it on the cross, and Jesus is then gonna take all of that stuff, and he's gonna give it to the, he's gonna perfect my gifts, mm-hmm. because they're not very good gifts, yeah. honestly, and he's gonna unite them to his heart, which is perfect, and he's gonna give them to the Father. When I was taught that, that hyperlinked that action yeah. in, my, in my heart and mind, so that every time I saw those gifts go up. Every time the basket goes around, yeah. it's not simply my my change or my 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 donation, my tithing, right? It's all of me. This this was taught to me at a time where I didn't have a job. Right. So it actually meant I had something to offer. Mm. And if that's the case, then Christ is going to give meaning to all of my work mm-hmm. and all of my suffering. Come on. Yeah. Like my suffering has meaning? How can like the the daily events of my life, which seem so mundane and boring, come to have meaning. It comes to have meaning when I understand the symbol and the significance mm-hmm. of these events. And and because this word, we're trained to think symbolism is something we invent. That's not the way the church means mystagogy. Mm-hmm. It's this is what the thing is. And it's it's done with this sign, but it's not just symbolic. It's actually happening mm-hmm. at the Mass. Yeah, That's one example of the Mass. Right. The whole Mass can be hyperlinked with multiple yeah. de- deep significance. Yeah. That, that is a major piece of um, understanding why the Eucharist, right. why does it matter? Yeah, and just to... That every everything in the mass, everything in the church has a litany of hyperlinks attached mm-hmm. to it. Mm-hmm. Everything, like nothing, is in the sanctuary. Nothing about the priest. Like there's nothing that doesn't have a litany of hyperlinks that mm-hmm. we can click on and mm-hmm. ask questions on. Yeah. And Mother Church is such a tremendous teacher. So we're so blessed to be filled with all of these material things and experiences yeah. that point to invisible realities. Yeah. And understanding and participating and appreciating and loving the liturgy as that is profoundly different than a rock concert and a TED talk. Right. Those are those are those are two completely different experiences. And and I love that this year of Eucharistic amazement is 
in some ways challenging us and dioceses and parishes to think about where have mm. we communicated our hyperlink because I because I think for generations in churches that my parents grew up in um, it was just assumed mm. right and I wonder if we've lost some of that yeah I think I mean I, mean, I think yes. I, we have growing up in the 70s and 80s I mean I I think we certainly have that in in the church maybe, uh, maybe the human institution is presupposed that we know all of those things. Sure. The um, it, it's it's worth mentioning that the the ancient process of being initiated into the church, um, you know, now we know it as RCIA, which is not just a, a modern acronym. It was it's actually the model that was used all throughout the early church at times when the when being a Christian was actually. Um, it meant risking your life and your livelihood, right? But that there was a process in which someone came to inquire about the church and was accepted into this process of discernment and learning about the church. And all of that would culminate. It could take years, actually. It wasn't yeah. just like a one-year process. It could take years. It would culminate in your full initiation at the Easter Vigil in your baptism and receiving the Eucharist. But what's interesting is that after that occurred, that's when they started doing the mystagogy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In other words, you would have to, you would get you'd be brought into the church on Easter Vigil, and then and only then would you be explained the mysteries of what it is that you're participating in. In fact, you you weren't even allowed to come to the liturgy True. if you weren't you got in. Kicked out. And and there's something um, to this that the 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 mystagogy um, it is actually kind of. Christ's words, do not present your pearls before swine. In other words, this this has to be given to the soul that's received the graces to be able to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have been given, if if we are baptized, the seed of that grace is there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? And and now what's occurred is we need to start watering and nurturing that seed. And humans get watered and nurtured. The cultivation of the human is is the teaching of the human, yeah. the human heart. And I think that's why, um, gosh, the, the, the liturgy, the, the more you understand its centrality to everything else, it has a right. way of unifying all these aspects of our of our faith. Yeah, It's like the nervous system, mm-hmm. something like that, or it's yeah. like the spinal column yep. of, of the whole body of Christ. Yeah, amen. Something that struck me was in 19, how uh, uh, JP2, he's talking about the... Um, the Eucharist being the source and manifestation of communion. I, I love this because he kind of just, he just zooms out. He's like, okay, what's actually, what's going on here with this whole like being Catholic and Christian thing? The point of, the point of Jesus is coming and, and, and dwelling here and through everything that he did being salvific, he came to save us. So that he came to build a bridge where we have uh, burned one down he came to restore us to fullness. He came to open the gates of heaven for us. He came to destroy sin. I could go on and on, and I'm not trying to make a universal declarative. This is just what Jesus came to do. I'm not mm-hmm. saying that. If we're so lucky, if we play our cards right, get to heaven one day, mm-hmm. you know, if we fast and repent enough, then we might get to heaven one day. No, he came, yes, to get us to heaven one day, but he came also to get heaven in us today. And he does that through the Eucharist. JP2, he talks about Jesus abiding with us. He says, Jesus abides, he abided with the people on the road to Emmaus. And it's only in the breaking of the bread when he 
he, he, oh gosh, how do you say it? When he celebrates the Eucharist again, like mm-hmm. he makes the Eucharist present again, mm-hmm. his very self with them, and then poof. <laughs> I love it. He just, he abides with them. He wants to not just abide with them, but he wants to uh, abide in them, right? And the even greater gift is in the Eucharist, right? Um, and receiving the Eucharist, he says in the second sentence, they're receiving the Eucharist means entering into a profound communion with Jesus. Abide in me and I in you. This relationship is a profound and mutual abiding, and it, it actually enables us to have a certain foretaste of heaven on earth. Is this not the greatest of human yearnings? Is this not what God had in mind when he brought about in history it's his plan of salvation? This is the whole point. Like mm-hmm. he, This hunger for heaven. Like, I don't want any pain. I don't want any suffering. I don't want any of this. I don't want sin. Like, I, I know that I'm fallen and I can't do it alone. But like, Lord, you are the the sole grace that makes this worth living. And it's you are the sole grace that allows me and actually enables me to strive for more and to go beyond my my state in life right now, right here. I don't know. It just it really it really gets me because like that that's my hunger. Like my screensaver, I'll show you guys so you can tell I'm not lying, is my uh it's it just says stay thirsty. It's just this <laughs> stay thirsty. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's for, great. Like that's the whole point is is to get to heaven, but to get heaven inside of us. And I just love it because we talk about this veil between heaven and earth, this veil being between heaven and earth. And it's in the Eucharist that it's pierced. It's in the Eucharist that we can glimpse beyond. It's in the Eucharist that we receive that foretaste. Uh, that JP2 is talking about. Yeah, he uses, throughout the document, he uses the story of the road to Emmaus to sort of bookmark the entire document. And um, there's a painting by Caravaggio. I, it's not his most famous painting. It might not even be his best painting, but sure. it's one that, that, I, that I've reflected on these last couple of years in this year, in these years of Eucharistic amazement. And it's Supper. It's called Supper at Emmaus. And in it, Christ is at the table. There's... There's obviously bread there. Yeah. And the, the table is set. And and the people around the table, they embody this type of amazement. Their arms are out. Their eyes are yeah. up. They're fully animated. And this word abide, this word abide, we've been studying this with the teachers the last few years. And Sebastian's using incredible restraint because he just wants to jump in and nerd out on the temple bless here you, in just a moment. But um, this word abide is it, it's it's synonymous with dwell. Yeah. And we hear that, right? The word we know this from the scriptures, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So what does it mean to abide, to dwell, mm. to tabernacle, to tent, to yeah. tent with God? Um, what does it mean that what does it mean to do that with him? And how we're invited to participate in that, in the Eucharist, and and again, in an endlessly practical way with bread, right? And then we go and we do it with our neighbors. We Mm -hmm. abide with our neighbors, with those people that God has entrusted to us, again, in his divine providence. Um, We abide and we dwell in them through the strength and the nourishment of of consuming him in the Eucharist. Right. I think the, yeah. Since you teed me up, <laughs> might as well. Might as well. Um, no, th- this is one of the most one of the most significant words to get to get into your imagination and your vocabulary 
in the church, um, this idea of abiding, which is all over John's gospel, mm-hmm. um, or remaining. It's the same, especially same John fifteen, particularly yep, because it's used. Yeah, it's you it, in like s- several verses. Yep. It's used twelve times. Yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy. Um, but this word is used at the beginning of John's gospel too. That the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we often are not aware of the incredible story that is behind that word. And the word actually goes back to Genesis because the place where God dwelt was Eden. Eden is where God dwelt with man. And famously, that's what Adam and Eve lost. They lost this this intimate dwelling with God. Now, what happens between Genesis 3 and John's gospel is this story of Exodus where, you know, what we've been studying with the, the teachers is, you know, when you think of Exodus, most of us think of the greatest hits of Exodus. We think of the Passover, if we know, if we know the story. Sure. We think of the, we think of the plagues. Um, we think of the crossing of the Red Sea, or maybe you think of Mount Sinai. But most of us are totally unaware of the last five verses of Exodus, which is really the climax of the whole thing, which is the building of, a, of the tent of meeting, which actually is terribly, it seems very strange to the modern reader to be like, why do I care about the architecture of a tent? Except for, and this is, this is the key, that that tent is actually, the whole building of it mirrors the structure of God's creating of Eden. And the, the story of Exodus ends with God's spirit dwelling in the tent, and the tent is with the people, why is this significant? Because it means God is reconstructing an Eden. He wants Eden back. The whole thing, the whole bit about Exodus, everything that we think of in Exodus was really a means to this desire of the Father's heart to dwell with his people mm. again, again. That tabernacle then becomes centrally important to the rest of the Old Testament. And it is be. Because of that, that, that tabernacle's importance, that the temple is important. And when the temple is lost, now you get why the, the drama of that it would have been so large, because God yeah. reconstructed Eden, and they lost it again. And then for John to say, the word did dwell among us, but this time not in a tent, but in flesh. Mm. And then that flesh said, this is my body with bread. So that when I come to the Eucharist, God, you said it beautifully, heaven becomes a reality inside of me. Another way you could kind of think of that is Eden is in me Mm -hmm. because God, and that was God's desire the whole time, that God wanted Eden so badly. And in more than Eden, he wanted something even better. That was only the beginning. There was something greater, and that something greater we already have in yeah. the Eucharist. Yeah. And to see that those hyperlinks in that story and to realize when I come to the Eucharist, that is what it's about. That's yeah. what it's about. Yeah, and when we Jeez. read John's Gospel and we see the wedding at Cana, mm. this, this, this feast, right? The first miracle, this feast where water is made wine and, and we see the bride and the bridegroom. Um, Christ, and we see Mary, right? The, the church, right? And that story follows immediately after the cleansing of the temple, where the temple, 
the temple of my heart then becomes cluttered and it becomes filled with all these all these idols. Um, in, in reading mm-hmm. those two stories side by side, uh, we can see, yeah, we can see this pattern. Mm. It's incredible. Yeah. It's just incredible to see. And if, if, if our uh, listeners weren't aware of that, if you've never read the, the Wedding Feast at Canaan recent memory, you should go back and ask yourself, where's the bride and the groom? Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the most surprising and strange aspects of Christian art and Christian tradition is, you know, Christ calls himself the bridegroom. Yeah. Um, and, and amazingly, um, Mary ends up representing the bride and you're yeah. like, whoa, whoa, how did this happen? How do we get from man and woman to mother and son and calling them, um, bride and bridegroom? And, and the answer is that, well, may, maybe that's just a, th- a thing to actually take to prayer because we're obviously not in any means, um, promoting any other kind of strange right. d- derivative of, of, of this when it comes to marriage, but it means that. Mary represents us as a people, as a whole people. As a church. As a church. That's why she's yeah. the model of the church. Um, by the way, it's why the mystagogy of your, of your buildings, if you have a church that's blue, oftentimes churches are blue on the inside. It's because that's Mary's color. And when you're in the church, you're in Mary. And she's the womb. The church is the womb. So get you walk into a church, you're walking into the womb. Yeah. And who was incarnate in the womb? Who dwelt there? Who dwelt there? Who's in there in the yeah. tabernacle? It's the Lord. Yeah. And you are then united to God in the church, in the heart of the church. Yeah. That's a different way to think of your building, of, of yeah. your church building. Yeah, the new Ark of the Covenant. We didn't even tap, we didn't even touch on that. Yeah. But we, <laughs> dear listener, we have to go preach the kingdom and bring the gospel in our spheres of influence. Any closing thoughts before we wrap up, though? <laughs> I would just say the the final one of the one of the greatest hits out of this reading that stuck with me sure. was on in paragraph twenty three, which was the Lord's Day, mm. and I bring this up because as a family we we do this so poorly sometimes. Um, but he he speaks to organizing the organizing the week right um, that. He writes, in every way, in every particular way, I ask that every effort be made this year to experience Sunday as the day of the Lord and the day of the church. Mm. Um, we, we speak in our sessions with our teachers and remind them that Christ is the organizing principle of all of reality. Mm. And a question that I have to continually come back to is, how is, the, how is Christ the organizing principle of my week, mm. of my day, especially of my Sabbath? Um, because if I treat Sunday that way, yeah. it changes every it changes everything. Yeah. And it's not just a day of rest, a day where I'm going to shop and make everybody else work but me, right? right? But in, in what ways is Christ the organizing principle of, of reality? And um, as a mom, little kids get this. Mm-hmm. They, they understand this. We have a joke. There's a, a little book that Kate made when she was little. I, I don't know. She was like four. And it's a stapled together group of pictures. And it's her just drawing mermaids. <laughs> like page after page is mermaid, 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 until you get to the last page and it's a monstrance. Oh, wow. <laughs> but I'm like, oh, okay. I didn't know you were going with that. All you dolphins and sea creatures, <laughs> praise the Lord. Yeah. Um, but that's how she, that's in her like little tiny brain, that mm. that's how she organized reality. Mm. Um <laughs> Even even with mermaids, mermaids for right? six days, 
<laughs> Jesus for there you go. Uh, for but that's but that's another particular challenge is how as families, um, because he writes in a sense the people of God of all times were present in that small nucleus of disciples. Mm. This is the evening of Easter, the first fruits of the church. I love that word nucleus, um, and he encourages. Priests, especially, is the celebration which brings together the entire parish community. I think then the challenge, though, is then to look on our own families, our own domestic churches, our own mm. nucleus, and saying, um, "Yeah, how am I living out this day with particular intensity, yeah. with intentionality, with devotion, with rest?" Mm. Amen. And putting Christ at the center of it. Amen. It's easy to have zeal for things. I would just pray, listener, that. You have a, a zeal for rest, that you are zealous for Sunday to, to rest and to truly recreate the face of the earth. Um, well, I just want to say thanks, Jenny. Thank you, Sebastian, for being here today. Thank you for your apostolate. Thank you for your yes. Thank you for your family. Thank you for your motherhood, your fatherhood. Thank you for all that you're doing to uh, build the kingdom of God here in Kansas City and beyond. Um, yeah, I, I know so many are, um, they have you to point to, to say, oh, when they said this one thing, it really shook me, it really rocked me. And yeah, you're just the uh, the agents of so much conversion that has happened and is happening uh, in this land. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Lee. Yeah. This has been New Mana. We'll see you next week. God bless you. Thanks.